So good morning, everybody. I'm so happy that I made it here. <laughs> Between the president arriving in Seattle and the airport being closed down for security reasons, I guess. For a green conference, somebody told me, while all the planes waited. <laughs> but we made it, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> um, I'll share with you how I got involved years ago. This has been my life's work in post-abortion trauma. And it all began when I was assigned my very first um, internship while I was still working on my master's degree to lead a support group for eating disorders. My patients were anorexics and bulimics. And um, the subject of abortion came up one night because Debbie was having nightmares and flashbacks to a previous abortion. And her ex-husband would call and leave messages on her answering machine. This is before cell phones, so the whole house heard it, her three kids, calling her a murderer. She would become so overwrought with despair and grief that she would slit her wrists. This had just happened for the third time, and she ended up in the local psychiatric hospital. So here she is with bandages on her arm. She had just gotten out, and she shared her story of what happened. As she disclosed what her husband said, there was another woman who said, your husband is a horrible man. And everybody nodded their head. She said, I had an abortion too, and it would just kill me if someone kept reminding me about it. And then there was another lady who stood up and she said, F them, F him. We have a right to control our bodies. Having an abortion is the best thing I ever did. And to hell with anybody who should try to make us feel guilty about it. And then there was another lady who got up, left the room, slammed the door, and we could actually hear her car screeching out of the parking lot. This is my, I'm a, this is my first therapeutic group. And when you're, <laughs> it was like a bomb going off. But you knew I would be a brilliant counselor someday because um, I called the girl who left later that night and I said, are you okay? You seemed upset. <laughs> and she said, I wish that I, I wish we could focus on eating disorders and stop talking about abortion. I said, did you, have a, did you have one too? She said, it was a long time ago, and I don't want to talk about it. Well, when you're a student, you have to go and regurgitate everything that happened in the eating disorder group to your supervisor, who was a psychiatrist. And I told him what happened in the group. He leaned into me. We were sitting in chairs like this, close to each other. He leaned in. He pointed his finger in my face, and he said, you have no business prying into people's abortions. Having an abortion is a personal thing, and I was instructed, under no uncertain terms, am I to discuss this, which sort of blew me away. <laughs> because with any addiction, it's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. And I said, I believe that Debbie has post-traumatic stress disorder. She's having nightmares. She's having flashbacks. And he said, that's a psychotic reaction caused by her medication. FYI, if anybody has such psychotic reaction, get them the heck off the medication. It's probably an adverse reaction. <laughs> but the psychiatrist is obviously much brighter than myself or common sense in this case. And he forbid the topic. So I left that. Group, I couldn't bear it because I, and I started the first therapeutic support group for healing after abortion. That sounds kind of fancy, but I could tell you that I had no idea what I was doing. 
I just knew that women needed some help. It was a free group. Um, somebody gave us a, like a church office where we could meet. But every week, they forgot to uh, leave the door open for us. So sometimes we would just sit in the parking lot. Later on, I got real estate <laughs> um, after I got my license and everything. And I was able to begin my practice. But it was just something, that's how I started um, to really explore this issue. There were so many things, which um, I'll, I'll tell you more stories of later, but the resistance to even discuss this not only in clinical circles, but in educational circles, with my school, with my supervisors, um, in internships that I had later on. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll share a couple more of those. But this is where I, I wrote a book um, called Forbidden Grief, because I really saw that it was a forbidden grief, and that there was no context or even recognition. And one of the, the most relieving things, as I'm sure you know here at Path of Life and your post-abortion recovery groups is that people are so happy to see that there's others that feel like they do because they interpret that I must be crazy because I never read about this. We've come a long way in 35 years because I started this while I was still in graduate school before I even had a, you know, five children. <laughs> so it's really been my life's work and it's led to other works as well which I can share later. Um, but uh, the, let's look at the prevalence of um, induced abortion. According to the Allen Guttmacher Institute, along with the World Health Organization, 20% of the 205 million pregnancies that occur worldwide end in induced abortion. And globally, that's approximately 41 million abortions each year. In the United States, it's 43% of women. It used to be 45%. It's slowly gone down a little bit will have an abortion, 43% of women by the age of 45. So we're talking about almost half our population. And with that is the men. <laughs> and there's a big circle of impact of grandparents, parents, siblings, and all the providers. Um, there's 50% of post-aborted women, women who are surveyed hide the fact that they've even had abortion from researchers. And women who don't reveal past abortions are much more likely to have unresolved feelings of shame, grief, and guilt. So that's 50% of women that don't want to say they've had it. And there was a worldwide meta-analysis. A meta-analysis, if you're not familiar with that term, means they take scores of research um, and they contabulate all of it. And what they learned was that um, using a standardized statistical technique for combining the results of multiple studies, um, it revealed that women with a history of abortion face higher rates of anxiety, which would be 34% higher. And this is contabulating a lot of literature. Um, depression at 37% higher, heavier alcohol is skyrocketing up to 110% higher, marijuana abuse is 230% higher, and higher rates of suicidal behavior, which were 155% higher. So that's using the high and the low ends, averaging out all these studies. They also only use literature where that didn't have methodological flaws. Sorry, method. I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> so 
it also found that women who delivered an unplanned pregnancy were significantly less likely to have mental health problems than were similar women who aborted unplanned pregnancies. Unless doctors and counselors carefully screen for known risk factors, it's impossible for them to properly evaluate the potential risks of abortion that are relative to each individual's medical and psychoeducational profile. If you want to know more about research, because I'm not here doing literature review, I, I might mention a few studies. This is a big one, and it's a more recent one. But there's a, a wonderful website that's um, it, it's just researchers that care about the topic, and it's called standapart.org. And, and if you want to see the latest, greatest studies of anything, and there's nice summary, uh, summary sheets. If you ever had to give a presentation and you want to know the data on depression, um, suicide. And some of the suicide studies, the best data that we have is from socialized medicine. So we get that from Denmark and Finland and other countries where you have the same health care provider and they keep your medical records. So they're also looking at death records and finding um, very sharp increases in death after abortion too. And as we go through this seminar today, you'll, you'll, you'll understand that phenomenon a little better. Um, but the, the death records don't really lie, you know, and neither do the medical records. This is much harder in the United States. I don't know about you, but we had Aetna, we had Blue Cross Blue Shield, now I think I have Cigna. So there isn't one database that's keeping track of what happens, emergency room visits after abortion, all that other stuff. There's an extensive continuum of post-abortion reactions. And not every woman experiences every single symptom. Um, some women may be bothered by clusters of symptoms, and others may have a very dramatic and debilitating reaction. And others might seem like they're tolerating the procedure with very little, if any, impact. Um, and what I've learned is that for some, the distress is immediate, where, and this is particularly true of teens and girls who have previous mental health histories, they don't have the, the capacity to repress the trauma when they've had previous traumas in their life. So um, they're more likely to exhibit things right away. Other people can go on until they're in hospice. When I teach in hospitals, I have all the hospice workers coming up saying that our hall is full of this. People do not want, so while you might say you were fine with your abortion, the moral, the spiritual injury becomes front and center when people are dying of cancer or some other illness. And they're fearful of, of um, going into the next transition without reconciling that. So we have Rachel's Vineyard teams who actually go in and do bedside retreats, small doses because people are, are ill, but to help them you know, meet their child reconcile with that child and look forward to the visit, you know, on the other side. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that uh, I'm speaking about abortion loss, but what I teach today can apply to any pregnancy loss from a miscarriage, uh, a sudden infant death, uh, because of the, the attachment that's there. So I'm, I'm going to invite everybody that I'm, you might be triggered today by some of the stories. Be gentle with yourself. Please, if you need to get up and go to the bathroom, I hear there's about 14 or 18 counselors here. You're among friends. Um, and just acknowledge what's happening inside. Don't, it's not unusual in a seminar like that that a trigger might happen. And I'm just giving you like a little 
a forewarning of it to take care of yourself. And no one in this room <laughs> wants to hold you back from whether you need to cry or leave and come back when you're ready. And if you need help, please let, um, let Sherry know. Sherry, can you raise your hand so everyone knows you? She will pair you up with someone that can, that can give you assistance right here today. We wouldn't want you feeling, um, feeling triggered out in, in a way that leads to anything uncomfortable. So um, this is the book that I wrote, and I want to share with you real quick um, why I wrote this book. I had another super, I'm sorry, I had another supervision experience at University of Pennsylvania Hospital where I was, I wanted to do a research on the letdown reflex of nursing mothers. So a lot of women with post-abortion trauma, some of them, my, my clients that had postpartum depression, they felt that they were so toxic they couldn't nurse their baby. Their child was a trigger because they hadn't reconciled and grieved the previous one. And so they didn't have a letdown reflex. The baby would cry. This reinforced all the belief that they're a terrible mom, they're a bad mom, they don't have what it takes, blah, blah, that, because that is the injury, right? The damage to maternal identity. And um, my supervisor in this situation, I was talking about my project. I was um, speaking of a pregnancy loss that I had had. I think I was six months pregnant and I lost a baby. And it was very traumatic for me. And I'm suddenly having some of the symptoms of people that I've been working with, you know, in, the, in all that. But she just, another person who leans into me, a supervisor, who says, Teresa, I just have to stop you. She said, supervising you will contribute to pro-life ideology. And I have an ethical problem with that. And she said, and I can't refer you to any of my colleagues because they all feel the same way. And then she said that I think that the Surgeon General at the time, we're going way back, C. Everett Koop, knows much more about post-abortion trauma than you. And he says it doesn't exist. And actually what Koop said was that the available data was flawed. And he recommended that millions of dollars be put into researching this common elective procedure that women undergo every day in the thousand millions. And um, to date, there's never been a government funding of any post-abortion research. And the people who do it are stonewalled. And a lot of, they have to go to other countries to publish where it's not so politicized, the issue. Um, so that was all the fuel that I needed to, <laughs> if someone tells you you're not allowed to do something, there's no other way to spend my life, right? <laughs> so I carried on from there. And I did go, I did, I did have a little a chat with her. Um, but it was so motivating. So sometimes when you feel like it's the end of the project, and I went in to develop Rachel's Vineyard instead for my dissertation. But that was my original project, to um, work there with all the postpartum depression and nursing mothers and histories of abortion. Maybe somebody in this room will do that project someday because I think it's a good one. But um, so let's look at post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, factors which indicate risk for trauma after abortion. I'm just going to go through these quick. I'll name them again what the APA has identified. To comply with the needs or wishes of others is a risk factor for trauma. And this is important to know even in your intake, in your counseling, in the work at Path for Life, and in any counselor's office. Know what these are. They're, it's 
In fact, if there was ever a lawsuit against you, there's doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists who've gone to jail because there's enough data out there um, to prove they've been prosecuted um, in some pretty important legal cases because they didn't warn. They didn't, it was a failure to warn, failure to see the symptoms, failure, failure to ask the question. Um, was there a recent abortion in your history knowing that teens can suicide? Um, so can anybody. So there's, because there's enough data out there, we never hear about this and it's not taught much, but I know lawyers that have gone after um, physicians, especially um, George Zaley did a lot of work in that because his daughter committed suicide after her abortion. Within one week of the abortion, she had suicidal ideation. He's a man of means, he owns a chain of grocery stores, and he did a lot to try to educate professionals. But before that, he had a big lawsuit with the doctor that didn't pick it up, didn't ask. He didn't know his daughter had an abortion. The father um, had taken, the, the boyfriend's father had taken her for an abortion and paid for it, and it was all a secret. But, in, but because he was a man of means, he immediately put her into counseling, and nobody picked it up, nobody asked the question. So it's important to know this, and also if you're counseling any woman that's thinking of it, I always feel I have an ethical obligation to share the, the risk factors. And it's a real good, it's kind of a neutral way to go about it, especially those of you who might work in a secular agency where, where it's not like path of life, where people know it's a pregnancy resource center. I think it's important. If she's being threatened to withhold love or approval unless she does the best thing, and even in the pregnancy, um, as she's seeing a, ultrasound even in your center here, or uh, having a test somewhere else. When there's people that are, are with her, there can be a lot of coercion. Like, you can come in here, you can do this test, but we're going to make sure you do the best thing. So it's best practice, and you probably already do this. I see, I see Sherry nodding her head that you, you have that conversation with her, although no one else is allowed in there, and you let her know what her options are, because I don't think we realize how many people feel that coercion. I've heard it so many times in, in um, our ministry that the threats, the, the parents making sure she's going to do the right thing, having already made appointments for her, the, the pressure and coercion is unbelievable. Lack of emotional support to keep the pregnancy can also feel like pressure. Um, and pressure from unfavorable circumstances, which could be anything from you're in college or you don't have money or you're sick with something, it could be anything. And prenatal testing that reveals a defect uh, is because those babies are longed for and wanted and the conflict uh, is, can, can lead to a, a profound level of trauma when they abort. Any ambivalence or uncertainty about their choice? And even the most hardcore pro-choicers will say that it was, everyone knows it's the most difficult decision a woman would ever make. So they're acknowledging the ambivalence. That right there is a risk factor. Um, an attachment or desire to keep the baby is another huge um, risk factor in any history of sexual abuse. Let's just look at the numbers of sexual abuse. I think it's one in four women um, are victims of some form of molestation, abuse, incest, uh, 
et cetera, and a previous psychiatric history. There isn't one shred of evidence in the literature that shows where abortion improves a person's mental health. So if you have depression, you have anxiety, you have some other mental health issue. In fact, people who suffer from these things actually feel like having someone to live for, to care for, actually gives their life meaning and improves their depression. They take better care of themselves. They eat better, even women with eating disorders. And I know there, I don't know what your centers are around here, but there's something called Renfrew Center in Philadelphia. That's the main eating disorder hospital. And they routinely take women for um, abortions when they have an eating disorder because they're trying to help women become reconnected with their disconnected bodies. If your body has a baby, I would say that's one way to connect with it. It just seems like they're sort of per perpetuating more dissociative experiences. The rage against pregnancy is the leading cause of death, is murder. I don't know if you've ever heard that statistic. It's been going on the same for years. One study of violent deaths among pregnant women, three out of every four were killed during the first 20 weeks of pregnancy. And men often attribute not wanting to pay child support. So in many cases, when girls go missing, it's right after they've disclosed pregnancy to their partner. And um, if she won't choose an abortion or do that, then she could end up murdered. I think we don't, these are like kind of important po points for us to be aware of in, when we address this issue, just how many women, it really isn't their choice. And um, traumatic events are accompanied by intense fear, horror, and a sense of helplessness. And a clinical diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, requires identification of symptoms in three different categories. So we're gonna go over those categories now. To have a diagnosis, you would need symptoms in these categories. Hyperarousal, I'll describe each of them. Intrusion, these are the three categories. And constriction, now we'll look at what they mean and for the professionals in the group, I'm sorry if this is redundant. I just want to, if you didn't study trauma, this will be helpful. Um, Hyperarousal hyper is characterized by all the panic and anxiety disorders. And if you've never had a panic attack, it's actually can be triggered by reactivity upon exposure to some, some trigger related to the trauma. So what will happen is shortness of breath, dizziness, sensation of choking, fainting, chest pain, heart palpitations, trembling, sweating, nausea, diarrhea, headaches, tingling and numbing sensations, feelings of disembodiment. That's where you feel like you're not really attached to your body and you're sort of floating off feelings of unreality. Um, hot flashes or chills. These are all like the classic symptoms of panic and anxiety. And um, there may be physiological, that's what happens in your body, reactivity upon exposure to any events or situations that symbolize or even resemble some aspect of the trauma or the abortion. Um, in addition to the psychological feelings of panic, most people have these bodily sensations. And this is probably the hallmark of trauma that when you're exposed, and we look at my eating disorder group here, we had all the manifestations of trauma, which would be fight or flight, the lady that stood up cursing and screaming and shaking her arm, she was in the fight mode of trauma. Flight is the girl who bolted out the door and uh, ran home. Um, 
And then the freeze is like the deer in the headlight. <laughs> We're going to talk about these later when we talk about the brain. But the physiological response is something that people have absolutely no control of over. And so when that happens, it can be very um, overwhelming. We are going to talk a lot more about this. But hyperarousal is the fight or flight mode. And um, it can happen if you're triggered by a doctor. One of my patients uh, couldn't bear to go to the OBGYN. Gynecologists, in particular, uh, caused a huge apprehension, a sick feeling, like you physically feel sick. She said that she couldn't get the nerve to visit a gynecologist for eight years after her abortion. She avoided them like the plague. And she had some yeast infection or something. She had to get treatment. And when she went up, sat on the table, she said she started to tremble and cry. And her heart was pounding out of her chest. And she said, I thought I was going to die. I remember being so terrified out of my mind. I was shaking, and I was crying, and I could hardly breathe. <coughs> Excuse me. The doctor must have thought I was crazy. I told him I didn't think I could go through with it, and I left his office. I wanted to kill myself. I felt completely berserk. So this is a very intense, not only a panic, but an intense physiological reaction. She did get up, leave the office. I've heard many women share that during, as they were on the table itself, everything inside them was screaming, get up, run out of here. It's not too late. But the stress actually paralyzed them, and they couldn't move. They talk about not being able to move. That's the deer in the headlight freeze response of trauma because the, all the stress has completely overwhelmed and frozen them. Um, Hyperarousal is also characterized by hypervigilance. That means that you're always on the alert for threats of danger. So you could be afraid to leave your child with anybody, your later children, because some guy's going to come out of the woods and steal them. Um, you could be, and the interesting thing about this hyperarousal around pregnancy loss is that it always involves some threat to their child. But it's like, it's, they're not thinking of abortion. They're just having this physiological sensation that's fear and danger, always. Um, exaggerated startle responses, um, difficulty falling and staying asleep. These are all symptoms of hyperarousal. So uh, exaggerated startle response means if, if you have trauma and I come in the room and I, I uh, drop my purse in a way that bangs on the table, you'll go, <gasps> that's an exaggerated startle response. Like everything's jumpy, every, every little noise, every whisper, a big bang, um, sometimes music going on, a, a sound. They're just always like super, uh, super jumpy. That's the clinical word, right? <laughs> and difficulty staying asleep. That hyperarousal is accompanied by a lot of adrenaline. You get a, a shot of adrenaline, and it could take three hours to fall asleep after that. So aggressive behavior, irritability, outbursts of anger or rage. This is fight or flight. This is the other side of hyperarousal, not just the freeze, but then there's the, I'm going to fight you back. Um, and difficulty concentrating. And I, I think this is an important one because a lot of women who have an abortion because they want to finish school end up feeling 
that they can't even focus on their lesson, they can't concentrate on anything they read, and they end up dropping out. And that's a, a very sad thing because the very reason they sacrificed the pregnancy was because they had wanted to pursue another goal and it was all not upon them. Um, other people can go on to be super high achievers and get many, many degrees as a way to distract and um, keep themselves so busy they can never think about it. And I will say um, that during COVID, we had a huge spike, huge spike in people coming on our retreats, calling our hotline, and, and um, except for the summer months, we were pretty much open, a lot of our, until the governor, but we, we continued. We even had things done online, all that. You, you might have done the same, like, you know, recovery groups online, but, uh, because people came face to face with the vulnerability that we're not here forever. And what we saw a huge spike in was women who had never even thought abortion bothered them in their 60s, 70s, and older, who, who were having panic attacks like they've never had in their life and they didn't understand why, aside from COVID. But it was all that extra time without the distraction that was bringing them in huge numbers. And I was also, a um, couple of retreats I did, there were women from many different AA groups all having the same thing, sort of mystified as to why all this upset, emotional upset was happening. But they had spent lifetimes in AA. Many of them had horrible alcoholic backgrounds and then became sober and then their religion and, and everything that they did was about staying sober. So they were very involved in AA. But that was a phenomena that I had never seen before with so many old women who were looking at this for the very first time. It never even occurred to them. And that beautiful thing that happens, which can also be so painful when they're connecting the dots. It's so painful because they realize, once they finally give themselves permission to say that was a huge trauma, I have amazing amounts of grief, but watching that delayed grief response till someone 60, 70, and 80 the past couple years was extraordinary. I, it was extraordinary. Usually we just have like one woman that might be like that on a retreat, but this was, it seemed like our retreats were top heavy with these older women who were very staunch pro-choicers their whole lives. So um, hyperarousal is, um, starts because there's connectors to the trauma. We also call that triggers. And that can be spurred on by people that were related to the event, sight, sound, smells related to the loss, an episode with death. Um, and that can be the death of a pet, the death of a parent, anniversary, anniversary reactions, which can happen on the anticipated due date and also the anniversary of the abortion. Both those times can bring on a lot of feelings. Weather can be a trigger if it was rainy or fall on the day of your abortion. We hear about seasonal affective disorder. I know a lot of people who have that. They say it's about the sun, but I know a lot of people who have it because of trauma. So there's cues in the environment, whether it's the snow of winter or the, the leaves changing colors in the fall. A deep sadness can come that people don't connect with the trauma, but they're the, they're the visual and even the smell cues in the environment that remind their body even when their brain forgets. And so the body will go into this hyperarousal, panic, anxiety response. And music. In, in abortion clinics, what's playing in the background is music. And you know if you're in that position, you're just going to focus on anything, whether it's the ticking of that clock in a 
in a, a way to help block out everything else so that you zone out into a dissociative state. And um, whatever it was they were focused on can become a trigger later. Because it's, um, it's connected even physiologically with the anxiety of the body. Um, we've heard the sound of uh, vacuum cleaners reminding them of the sound of the suction machine. Uh, one woman I talked to was talking about every time she makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for her kids, she has a total panic attack because the jelly reminds her of blood clots. She passed after the abortion. And um, other triggers can go on for a, a long time. One, one woman had not seen the father of her aborted child in many years, and he came into a bank where she worked, and she saw him going over. She said, my emotional state exploded. Floodgates of memories came all around me, and I had started having panic attacks, and I stopped sleeping, and I just lay in bed half the night and cried. She didn't connect. She knew she knew that guy, but she didn't even connect it to the abortion experience. Um, she was shocked by her response and struggled to make sense of why this was all happening. So it's sort of like so deeply repressed that it takes all this. She said the second time that he came into the bank, he looked right at her. And she said, I don't even think he recognized me. And then she began having physical symptoms of cramping. Uh, and she had to leave work. So she's doubled over in pain. And this cramping sensation is very real. There's a word for it. It's called psychophysiological reenactment. It means that the body remembers and is replicating the exact same feelings that accompanied the traumatic abortion. So we see this in ministry, where um, people are talking about their experience. They lean over in their chair. They, I'm sure you've seen this if you do post-abortion counseling. They hold their stomach because their stomach is in physical pain. It's cramping as they remember, you know, as they remember. That can often accompany, as anybody that does high trauma work, we're always working with the body. We always have to tune into the body. And I, I'm excited to be here today so that you can use these same tools in your crisis pregnancy counseling. Because when the, when the body takes off like that, it, it, well, I'll share what happens later, finish this. But it's exciting. <laughs> Exciting to know that there's tools that you can really keep somebody there and you can hang with them and keep them in the present moment. Um, so another girl had an abortion and she was fine for six years until her dog had to be put to sleep. So she takes him to the vet. He's really, really sick. He's been struggling and she's all set to go through and then um, she says to the vet, I just have a hard time allowing something to be killed. And as she spoke those words, the memory of her abortion came over her like an overpowering nausea. She crumbled to the ground. She had a complete breakdown. And she ended up leaving with her dog. Her brother had to bring it back. But she said that the worst thing was um, that everyone at work, because she couldn't stop crying at work, she'd be on a sales call and start bawling. And, and all her friends at work were like, why don't you just get another dog? And she said, I couldn't tell him it wasn't my dog that I was missing. It was my baby who, who would be six years old and should be with me now. So that kind of a very delayed grief response is, is common and very overwhelming. And if people can't connect it to their loss, they do feel like they're going crazy because they don't understand why everything's falling apart. And it's very um, disorienting, especially because this can happen 
the week after abortion, the day after abortion, or 70 years later. <laughs> you know, I've seen the whole span, and I'm sure many of you have as well. So the sight of pregnant women can trigger the same thing. Um, sometimes when I look at all the UN initiatives to block out even the word mother to try to sterilize everybody, it's like such a devaluing of all that. But if a pregnant woman is a trigger, then people that want to avoid triggers and keep themselves calm are going to be highly invested in pushing all this stuff and normalizing the experience. When I found out my coworker was pregnant, one gal says, I was overcome with anxiety and fear. I didn't even want to look at her. I knew I couldn't take watching her belly growing each day with a baby, hearing, hearing everyone come up to her to give her congratulations. It was more than I could bear. I knew I had to leave that job because of her pregnancy. She said, and I did, after three weeks of torturous anxiety and guilt. I just couldn't take it. I didn't want to be around and hear about a nursery being decorated, maternity clothes, and just watching the whole thing. It made my heart feel like it would beat out of my chest. I always had a knot in my stomach and a sickness in my heart. I love that job, but I couldn't put myself through watching her for the next nine months, so I quit. You see, the loss, when this isn't processed, and something she worked very hard for, she couldn't take. I've also worked with high executives who tell me after they're done the healing um, process that they are aware that they made life hell for pregnant working moms because they had to sacrifice maybe four kids to get to the top and they didn't want to make it easy for anyone else who didn't pay their dues. I've heard many very successful, brilliant women heads of huge corporations admit that after their healing and very broken because they had the career that sometimes lasts, sometimes it doesn't, with no children who are going to, you know, there's, there's just such a life legacy and life circle of life here that gets disrupted. And the grief is profound even though you can distract yourself with it. But I thought that was so honest an assessment, and you know if someone's at a high level of healing. One woman even went to apologize to people. But this is where I feel like feminism has so failed to achieve its goal when we have to mutilate our bodies in order to fit in or to get ahead. And, in, and that when you realize the number of women who have this trauma, when we could have a nursery on every corporate campus, there could be flex time in the workplace. There could be a lot of ways to accommodate us as we're birthing future citizens. But that, but the medical care is going completely in the other direction, and we can't um, we can't negate this the profound detrimental effect that this has on women over time. So Mother's Day is a connector. Um, what are we celebrating on Mother? I know this can be hard to even honor one's own mother. Some people can't even pick out a Mother's Day card. But again, these are things that they feel inside, they feel anxious about, sometimes they connect, but quickly close that door. I did the best thing. And what happens is when you justify the decision, you forbid the expression of grieving, and through grieving is how we heal. You have to acknowledge, you have to own it, you have to let yourself release the grief that's buried under all the excuses, justifications, and denial, and that's how people heal. Anniversary dates can, um, oh, it, it, I, I mentioned anniversary dates, but Christmas is another one. 
sometimes I wonder about banning the crush in public squares. Is it a trigger? I mean, I'm just theorizing here because it seems to be so profound. But what are we celebrating at Christmas? It's more than just Jesus. There's a baby there in the crash. And I know that for young women who abort their children and then go, they can't bear Christmas holidays because they see their parents doting over the grandchildren. They see the sisters so happy. They can't go to, um, to christenings even when they're asked to be a godmother because that baby is such a trigger and theirs is missing from the picture of all this love celebration. So a lot of um, women will withdraw or they have to get completely bombed over every holiday where they're home because they can't stand what it makes them feel. Um, intrusion. All those things that I just talked about were symptoms of constriction. I'm sorry, <laughs> hyperarousal. All the panic and anxiety. Um, now we're going to talk about intrusion, and that's the re-experience or where you relive the traumatic event in one of many ways. So that would be what flashbacks are. Flashbacks are a form of intrusion, and this is where the tentacles of the past, they reach into the present, and they make you feel like the event is happening right now, right here. So when we talk about staying in the present moment, it means being able to come out of a flashback or a fear. Uh, and it's so important because if you start reliving that, then the arousal is going to go on and you won't be able to stay with what you need to do to keep healing. Um, nightmares are also a form of intrusion. And that's where um, the loss is relived or symbolized. And that can be a normal part of life for a lot of people. Um, one is more vulnerable to experience information from the unconscious when you were asleep, and that's why nightmares come up, because you're not, you're not in a defensive posture pushing thoughts down or away. Um, one girl shared that she had this, she, I hear a lot of dreams like this, actually, where people are, feel that they're in labor and they're pushing out a baby. Um, another, another girl said she's in the, the hospital and she just had an abortion and her whole family comes in carrying balloons and flowers saying congratulations to her. So, and then she would wake up crying, screaming, taking hours to calm down. So now we're going to see sleep disorders happening when nightmares come. And some people, because they know nightmares happen, are going to do the late night life. They'll be the last one to close the bar. And I can't tell you how many women say that that's when they confess all their troubles related to the abortion when they're sitting in a bar and they've had they're totally tanked because all stops all quirks are off so that can also become an addictive way to be grieving through all the alcohol and whatever comfort whoever gives them that night comfort or the next pregnancy right <laughs> so um, another girl talks about I'm pushing a baby down through the birth canal and I'm excited and nervous to see the baby and there are doctors and nurses all around me telling me when to push. They're holding my hand and helping me with the delivery. Finally, I deliver a baby and it's dead. And to my horror, the attendants all act happy, like it's normal to deliver a dead baby, like, like nothing's wrong. I start to scream and cry and they all look at me like I'm eccentric. I wake up from this crying so hard I can ha hardly catch my breath. So she's reliving the experience in her dreams. You can relive the experience in a flashback. Um, and this is what intrusion is. Another girl dreams uh, very frequently that she's out in a store and she's buying everything that the baby needs, um, diapers and 
cute little outfits, everything, till the cart is overflowing. And she said that part of the dream shopping feels like it goes on forever. She feels so happy and, and a lot of joy. She says she gets to the counter, and this is like a recurring dream, and the police come, they surround her, and they handcuff her, and they say, you can't have those things. Um, and she wakes up screaming. She had her abortion because she couldn't afford a baby. So in a reparative dream, she's out shopping, trying to get everything that that little one needs. And she's feeling a lot of joy about it. Um, but the self-condemnation is accusing her of a crime. And that's what the police are. There's always a lot of police in post-aborted dreams, because they're going to come. There's also a lot of police in post-aborted acting out, because you're shoplifting, you're doing things. I've also met men who actually had plans to bomb abortion clinics. They were post-abortive fathers going to the clinic where that happened. I've met them on our retreats. Um, and it's really painful. So when she would wake, she'd cry alone. She would cry. And what did she feel? What you feel is the same thing. It mirrors the abortion experience. She felt victimized, powerless, and alone. And when she had this dream, she would have the emotional thing. So another form of intrusion, aside from nightmares and flashbacks, it's having the same feelings that accompanied the original loss. Um, and I spoke about how intrusion can be very big during anniversary reactions. Repeat pregnancies and repeat abortions are a form of intrusion. I'm, and I'm going to. I have a little video. I thought it was now, but I guess it's later. Um, Risk-taking behavior is also a form of intrusion. I had one client who would drive her car 80 miles an hour with her eyes closed and count to 10. She called this game chicken. And she'd say, what are you, chicken? And then she'd close her eyes and do it again. And she was always um, so proud of herself that she didn't have her four-year-old in the back of the car when she did this. That all started after her abortion. So um, risk-taking behavior can, can, can be out being very promiscuous in a culture of AIDS even, um, hookups all over the place, risking STDs, risking um, more pregnancies, et cetera. Other kinds of risk-taking is like walking outside in Central Park at 2 AM. You're almost like inviting to be raped. But this is kind of like the reenactment of the shame of the you know, it's, it's intrusive behavior. And the, another form of intrusion is suicidal impulses, suicidal ideation, and we know that's very common. I did one study on people coming into uh, Rachel's Vineyard retreats. We learned that 65% of them had suicidal ideation in the past. Um, we had another study done that showed that, that suicidal ideation means you're just thinking about it. Um, it was about 26% who had actually made suicide attempts by overdosing on drugs or, you know, you know, aspirins and things like that trying to hurt themselves. And sometimes these uh, car, high car accident, high risk things, it's just like they don't care if they die, but it's an intrusion, it's an intrusive experience. It's not really what they plan to do that day, right? So intrusive thoughts are unwelcome images and scenarios that enter your mind for no apparent reason. So a common one I've heard is that they're riding 
kind of fast and all of a sudden if they're on the side of a cliff or by a bridge, they feel like they just want to gun and go right over the edge. And then they're like, oh my god, I can't believe I just thought that. Like, why would I think that? But this is intrusive thoughts. It's part of PTSD. So once an intrusive thought comes, it can be really hard to put it out of the mind. People describe anxiety-provoking negative thoughts, which can be hard to get rid of. And um, so that's where the driving, thoughts of going insane, losing control, having bad thoughts about yourself or other people, thoughts of harming people. This is a big one. Um, you know, one gal that I worked with had fantasies all the time of castrating the guy. Um, we know that Lorena Bobbitt actually did that after her abortion. Um, and my client said, I can't believe somebody finally did it because she had been thinking about it all the time, right? <laughs> and um, the feminist movement saw Lorena as a hero. Victory. Snip, snip. Because I think she was tapping into a collective rage. Um, and Barbara Walters asked her in an interview, what were you thinking the moment you did the cutting? And she looked deadpan at the camera and she said, my abortion. And Barbara Walters dropped the subject like a hot potato, which is so unusual, right? <laughs> she should want to know all the, all the details, but she just dropped it right there. And um, interesting story about that. I, I write about that story in Forbidden Grief. So like dreams and fantasies, intrusive music, musings have symbolism or meaning, which is disguised. And interpreting intrusive thoughts can reveal anger, grief, fear, or some other emotion or experience, traumatic experience that's been buried. Um, other kinds of intrusion is obsessions. So one, a lot of women uh, report death-related obsessions, which surface after their pregnancy uh, and subsequent pre pregnancies. During later pregnancies, one woman shares, I had tons of anxiety. I was always afraid of miscarriages. I constantly obsessed about the chances of having a stillborn. I imagined the cords wrapping around their necks in utero and having to deliver them dead. During every pregnancy, I became so sick. But of course, because of my abortion, I felt I deserved it. I think I drove my midwife crazy with my obsessions and worry. Every little ache or pain or cramp made me preoccupied with panic and the fear of my baby dying. Um, rituals of obsessive compulsive checking, washing, confessing, and doing things over and over in a certain order. Usually we think of this as obsessive compulsive disorder, but it can also develop after a traumatic experience where you never had it before. Um, one woman was a cleaning fanatic, and I've heard this of many people. They, they want to, they just put all their energy into cleaning. Sometimes knocking down rooms and fixing them up again. <laughs> um, polishing, shining, washing the kitchen floor every day, which in my mind is a serious mental illness. <laughs> but cleaning is a way to ritualize her need to make everything look perfect. And um, it's an activity that also binds anxiety. When people obsess about things, even an eating disorder that takes on, it's a way that you bind anxiety because all the anxiety gets focused into this thing rather than the bigger problem. Um, but this is the, for her it was, um, it was helping make things look perfect. When she thinks about her abortion, she said, it was so important for me to look perfect. I never wanted anyone to know what I had done, not even myself. And so the toilet, the kitchen floor, everything became a symbol of something contaminated that needed to be cleansed. And now we're moving into a metaphor for the soul.
constriction is the last number, three categories, hyperarousal, intrusion, and now we'll talk about constriction. Constriction is the numbing of your emotions or behaviors, which is all designed to avoid sights, sounds, smells, or feelings associated with the trauma. When I say it's designed to avoid this, meaning that's a survivor mode, nobody realizes that that's what they're doing. They're just trying to live through it. So an inability to recall the abortion is a constriction. I've met people who wanted to bring Rachel's Vineyard to their town. They organized a whole team. We sent a team. And three days into the retreat, that person remembered that they were also post-aborted. This is how deeply that can be repressed. And yet there was something inside that put a call there, that wanted her to help others, that, was, that drove a lot of effort and energy. Um, but that's how deeply we can repress trauma. And we know that about childhood abuse, that people can you know, remember it. It's repressed material, and they can remember it. You know, usually, um, I say when life is safe enough for it to come up, or they're with a secure or stable partner, and they have support in their life. Otherwise, these memories don't come up. And um, if after I made Rachel's Vineyard, I wrote another retreat that's a whole week long for sexual abuse. It's called um, All Abuses, but Sexual Abuse is done. But it's called Grief to Grace, Healing the Wounds of Abuse, Any Kind of Abuse. But because 60% um, of everybody coming into Rachel's Vineyard had histories of sexual abuse, I wanted to make another program for them. And then we just opened up to anybody. But, but we started it with our Rachel's Vineyard teams who needed another level of healing. And I want to mention that because there is high, high correlates, which we'll talk about later. Another form of constriction is all the alcohol and drug abuse that accompanies the aftermath of a trauma. Um, I already shared some of the st stats on that. And another example of constriction is avoiding activities or situations that might remind you of the trauma. So what do we have here? What would remind you of the trauma? A lot of things in life, including ever getting pregnant again. I know many women who've entered lesbian lifestyles, because, and they will say they did that because they never wanted to be in that situation again where they would have to have an abortion. So it's driving a lot of things in our culture, this trauma. Um, withdrawal from relationships. Um, most of the relationships are very strained after abortion. Um, and if people are in a marriage, there's a lot of trauma in that relationship that can take years to go out. That's why I saw really quickly when I first started those groups that post-abortion healing was hurting marriages. <laughs> why is that? Because when people heal, they don't take the same, sometimes, abuse that they are willing to take when they feel they deserve to be punished. And also, they're having a, a beautiful spiritual experience and sometimes a conversion. And they're no longer on the same page with their, their partner. So to do that together and go through the grieving process together is extremely bonding. So I'm, I'm a big fan of bringing men into uh, you know, the healing process if people decide that that's well. And it's very healing to women to see men grieve, extremely healing. They say it restores their faith in men to see a man crying over the loss of his child or a father crying over the loss of his grandchild. 
um, avoidance of children. Uh, there's a slogan called childless by choice. I think it should be childless by trauma, especially when we look at the repeat abortion patterns. And restricted affect is another form of constriction. Restricted affect means that you never feel really happy about anything and you never feel really terribly sad. You're in that numb middle ground, I'll call it zombie nation, okay? You're going about all the motion, but you're not really there. And the ultimate uh, restriction is suicide. Uh, Vicki described her suicidal feelings after her abortion. If I had a gun, I would have blown my head off. After my abortion, I was in such severe pain, death seemed the only solution. It seemed like the only way I could be back with my baby. I overdosed on pills and drinks. I wanted out from the pain and the heartache. Um, Andrea and Russell Yates, do you remember how she drowned three, five kids in the bathtub? I actually called her husband because in the trial, as you read the court transcripts, she said, I knew it was time for me to be punished. And it sounded so much like post-aborted thinking that I've heard scores of women report um, that, that it's time to be punished and that's why you have the acting out. Um, but I was very curious, so I called him, and I was able to get a hold of him. And I said, Russell, did Andrea ever have an abortion? And she said, uh, he said, um, no, but she had a miscarriage, and she was never the same after that. And all I could think of, maybe she did have a miscarriage and wasn't the same, but I thought of hundreds of women who told their husbands, they'll, they'll disclose this on the retreat, that they had a miscarriage when they went to the hospital for a d &E. And it was an abortion, but they didn't want to say that. So um, who knows? There's so many there's so many cases that hit the headlines, and um, it's usually not a factor that's allowed for discovery. But but I thought that was interesting. So this is the vicious cycle of PTSD, and I'm just checking on my time. So we have 75 minutes for this. Okay. <laughs> um, Constriction is where you're avoiding all the thoughts. Intrusion is where the subconscious is drawing your attention to the traumatic event. Hyperarousal is all the panic and the anxiety and the physiological response that you have to the memory, to the trigger. And this is the vicious circle. And hyperarousal is marked by very high levels of emotion. Constriction is marked by the numbing of one's emotions. That's the deadening. And the alternating um, back and forth represents the approach avoidance conflict. A lot of people come into healing programs like this. They can't take the pain anymore. They're kind of desperate. And yet they're so fearful that if I really look at this, I'm not going to be able to function. I'm not going to be able to go to work in the morning. I'll be crying all night. And when I first started my support groups, I learned that the women were stopping at the bar on the way home. That's when I had the idea to do retreats in a safe weekend where they didn't have to leave the compound. <laughs> They didn't have to leave the place. And I felt like it was a safe way to do this because you're arousing it. And I knew that by the time we did this intensive um, weekend together that they would get through what they needed to get through in safety. That's another, that was another thing that um, I, anybody at trauma is at risk for that in the you know, 50-minute counselor. There's a lot of people who dissociate in the session and they leave and they sit in the car for a long time. So I've always done... High, tra high trauma therapy, I don't put a time on it. I can't because you have to make sure they're there and with you. And that's why I started making all these retreats. I also made one for soldiers. 
called Duty to Heal, Finding Peace for a Soldier's Heart. And we piloted that with post-aborted women. And the soldiers at the end of the retreat said, we thought there was nobody in the world who knew what it was like for us. But you guys do. And we actually think that you have it worse than us because it was your own children you killed. Can you believe that? And they're spearheading the effort, spreading duty to heal. So this beautiful healing begets more healing and the compassion, the sensitivity, that deep understanding of the moral and the spiritual injury as well as the trauma that, that killing brings. Um, it's very personal and it's very real. It's very damaging. So um, it deserves our attention and I'm so glad you guys are are already serving in this area because you don't know what those you heal are going to go on and do. The God's healing them, but um, because of your efforts. So those three states are symbolic of the trauma. The persistent expectation of danger, which is what happens when people are going in. They're nervous when they go in the clinic. You know they are. Many are already dissociated, which you can probably see if you do any kind of sidewalk counseling. They're already, or they have their manhandlers around them to make sure they get in there. Intrusion is the indelible imprint of the traumatic moment, and constriction is the numbing response of surrender. That's the give up, that's the collapse. I can't take this anymore, and you give up. So, you ready for your pop quiz? I don't think we have time for this, actually. <laughs> it's, it's, all, um, it, it's all from a book that I read by Phyllis Chesler called With Child, that, um, the therapist who kicked me out of supervision, before she kicked me out, she gave me this because I was expecting my first baby. And she wanted to know what I was in for. But Phyllis had four abortions, and it was everything I just taught about, all in her book. And Gloria Steinem extolled this book as providing myth-shattering insights that will affirm women's sanity. Of course she did, because she had her own traumatic abortion. And here's somebody else with all these intrusive symptoms, thoughts of infanticide after the baby was born, hearing the baby cry, like all the triggers. It's a nightmare of a book, which when I read it, I said, I'm going to put this down and read something more affirming of the motherhood experience. And she accused me of trying to glamorize motherhood. So <laughs> what can you do, people? Right? <laughs> but it was, um, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing book. And, the fact that we want to normalize that as a pattern to enter pregnancy is very disturbing. Um, but that's what made feminists love this book because, oh, here's somebody else who thinks of that. When they're really disturbing and kind of, um, it would be a symptom of high alarm for anyone. Not only was she suicidal, she was constantly obsessing about hurting the baby. And um, yeah, so this is her. and. The woman who gave me her book, I think that Phyllis Chesler was her patient because she taught at Westchester University. <laughs> and she gave me an autographed copy of the book saying, to Teresa, happy motherhood, love Phyllis. So I never met her, but I did ask for permission to quote her book <laughs> for something I was doing on feminism. <laughs> oh my. So um, anyway, we'll skip that part. I think that we're at our break right now. And we'll take we'll take a quick break. Yes, huh? Oh, I thought I had seven. I thought I had seventy minutes. Oh, ten thirty. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the time on the side that someone else calculated. Sorry. I'll keep good. 
We'll talk about traumatic reenactment. This is important. Um, traumatized people don't repress their, uh, their traumatic experience in the sense of forgetting. During the trauma, the feelings and knowledge of what's happening is so unacceptable that they barricade off from the cognitive um, intellect. So you just you sort of block off your moral values, your your um, all your beliefs get get sectioned off. At the same time, I'll call this a quarantine memory, which experienced and remembered the trauma becomes the anchored phantom. So it's like there's a quarantine, but it's there. And it becomes fixed at a certain moment in a person's life. It's so it's dissociated, a quarantine from consciousness. And that becomes the material that is drawn upon in subsequent traumatic reenactments. So we'll look at some of them. Um, history repeats itself. We know that. People who've been traumatized cannot heal themselves alone. It's one of the tragedies of human existence that what began as life-saving coping skills might end up um, delivering people into the hands of a compulsive repetition. It's become very clear that the very nature of traumatic information processing determines how people reenact, what behavior. So splitting traumatic memories and feelings off into nonverbal images and sensations might be life-saving in the short term, but prevents full integration in the long term. So the goal of healing is integrating. It's like bringing all that stuff that's like out there, quarantined, but pops up when it's triggered and comes out, is acted out, or is reenacted in behaviors. Um, it, it's it's got to be all bought together. Same with sexual abuse. That's the work of sexual abuse, is being able to integrate what happened. Otherwise, you can't really live in the present because you're always being hijacked. Your nervous system is always being hijacked. So based on what we know about the split between verbal and nonverbal thought, it might be the most useful way of understanding traumatic reenactments through the language of drama. Shakespeare told us that the whole world is our stage. And with behavioral reenactments, we see this in action. We reenact our past everywhere, at home, at school, at the workplace, on the playground, and in the streets. We cue each other to play roles in our own personal dramas, secretly hoping that someone will give us a different script, a different outcome to the drama, depending on how damaging our experiences have been. So the cure is actually in the disease. The only way the nonverbal brain can speak is through behavior, since it has no words. Um, if we look at reenactment behavior, we can see that traumatized people are trying to repeatedly tell their story. So when the, whole, when the story hasn't been told, our behavior tells it, our relationships tell it. Um, it's very overt or highly disguised. And if we could only still interpret nonverbal messages, perhaps we could respond more adequately to that cry for help, that call for help, the reenactment somebody who's had 10 abortions, somebody who keeps getting in crisis pregnancy, somebody who will only marry or, or want to date the guy who is a loser in a bar who is just there for a one-night stand. By the way, I wonder if some of this upsurge in all these dating shows, Love is Blind, and you marry someone before you even meet them because they want to make sure they're on the same page and not waste time with all this all this stuff. <laughs> I can't believe how many shows there are. All this. Maybe they've been around a while, but I just started watching TV lately. <laughs> I 
Anyway, in Macbeth, Shakespeare urges us to give sorrow words, the grief that doesn't speak whispers over the fraught heart and bids it break. Um, um, because the traumatized person is cut off from language, uh, they're deprived of the power of words. It's very hard to tell the story. And um, we'll talk more about the brain later. He reproduces it not as a memory, but as an action. He repeats it without, of course, knowing that he's repeating. He cannot escape from this compulsion to repeat. And at the end, we must understand that this is his way of remembering. That's from Freud. Give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak whispers. Oh, I read that to you. So we'll look real quick at trauma's impact on memory. Hypernesia is something that can happen where you remember every minuscule detail and you play it over and over in your head. This is some memory disturbance that happens to people after abortion. So they will be able to tell you graphic sights, sounds, smells, senses, everything they remember with acute recall. This is its own hell because while you might have good recall, that's what you obsess about. So you're constantly playing it over and over like a horror movie that you can't find the off button to. That's hypernesia. Um, it's intrusive, and it can absolutely interfere with everyday functioning. And it's definitely a painful way to experience PTSD. One girl says, my memories of the abortion are very vivid. I can even remember the smell of the women's clinic. I also remember the colors on the wall, the expression on the nurses' faces, and exactly what they said to me. I remember putting on a pink paper gown and feeling it crinkle against my body. Every time I think about it, I get the chills. The whole thing was horrible. I personally would rather have amnesia. It's the pathologic loss of memory, a phenomenon in which experience becomes inaccessible to conscious recall. There's a deficiency in being able to recollect the events accomplishing a set period of time, and it's a, of, of something profoundly disturbing. So some women can't recall a single event from the morning of their abortion until several day, days later. It's all blocked out. I remember, more, I remember the morning of my abortion. I remember making my bed, which is weird because I never make my bed. I remember putting on makeup and looking all over for my summer sunglasses. I didn't want anyone to recognize me. Seems stupid now that I wore sunglasses and a hat. That's all I remember. Everything else is a blank kind of like it never happened. I remember being at my sister's afterwards, but I can't tell you anything about that, just that I went there. So we have this amnesia for periods, sections. Another type of disturbance is called selective amnesia, and this is a, a failure to remember some, but not all of the incidents during a certain period of time. <coughs> Excuse me. So a woman may remember going to the abortion clinic but not remember the faces of anybody. If they were in a lineup, they couldn't tell you who the abortion was, even if abortionist, even if he didn't have a mask on. Abortion is such a blur to me. I remember signing papers, but I couldn't tell you what they were about. I remember cramping afterwards and going to the pharmacy to buy aspirin. Um, if I was in a room, I couldn't identify anyone. And he's nothing at all. I don't remember, which is weird because I never had any local anesthesia. I remember wanting wanting it, though, because I didn't want to be awake when they did it. So pe people have different different blocks of different pieces. And it can 
that can make it difficult in healing. That's why I love groups, because the memory sparked creates a catharsis for those that are there. Um, when other people have the memory and they don't, it can be, not that anyone has the same memory, but many are going through the same experience. That's what makes this kind of healing of a particular trauma different than like sexual abuse trauma that could happen from before you're even verbal to different, different ages. So dissociation is another phenomenon that occurs when you're enduring an extraordinary stress. Trauma victims have been known to dissociate themselves from the things as they're happening. So I've heard people do say they feel like they're floating above the person on the table, feeling distantly sorry for them, but it's not them. So afterwards, she might be unable to remember the abortion on a conscious level, but she'll experience intense physiological arousal. So you can have all this block out, you can have all this amnesia, but your body remembers. And the body bears the burden. And in a very real way, we talk about reenactments. There's also reenactments on a physical level with different kinds of illnesses, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's, you know, I know that the rates are higher. There's a, there's a medical reason for that, but there's also an emotional reason for that because um, the breasts are a symbol of motherhood and nursing and all that other stuff. And um, so there's a lot of meaning in all that. And women that are shouldering too much responsibility or a lifetime of trauma, they break down. The autoimmune diseases are very high. And people after trauma, I know that post-abortive women are no exception from that. I remember wanting to study this because I've been doing this my whole life. When some of our leaders, many, most of whom are post-abortive, were having autoimmune illnesses, cancers. They were. Ha it's like everybody was breaking down, and I'm like, what is this? You know, they were new into healing, but they had spent, they had spent lives, and they're young. Um, so, the essential feature of dissociation is the sudden alteration in the normal uniting function of the conscious and the unconscious. And typically, when this occurs, a person's feeling of reality is lost, and it's replaced by feelings of unreality. That's dissociation. In fact, if someone dissociates, um, can anyone here share how you know they're dissociating? If, if you're a clinician and they're in a chair in front of you, how do you know they're dissociating? Can anyone share that? They're quiet. They're not talking. Sometimes they're staring. They're completely unresponsive. They're like in another world. And there's another way to dissociate into the trauma, which means sometimes when they're telling you their story, they actually enter it. And then they have all the hyperarousal. And they're actually, believe it or not, there's the potential to be re-traumatized in that. So um, this is where Christian programs really put, they're really so cutting edge for many years. But I think that that will be recognized more and more now that the trauma field is finally understanding itself in a much bigger way, mostly because of brain scans that are available, which we'll talk about more. But because you're able to go into prayer, because you're able to, and I know we do this in, in our program, we dip in and out of the trauma the whole time. 
we go into meditations where you're seeing Jesus heal someone and then you're coming on and you're dialoguing with him out loud and then you're telling pieces of your story, then you're journaling and everything is like a sensory-based treatment. I'll share a little bit about it later because some of these things you can well use in your own program because anything that stimulates the senses is grounding. Anything. That's why therapists have teddy bears and soft things and spiky balls and we have all this stuff on our retreats too. Sensory toys, even a spiky ring that kind of hurts your finger but you roll it back and forth because it's grounding. To feel, to feel pain is grounding. This is why people cut. And I might have a slide about that. In this. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people cut and I'm also going to put tattoo in there because when you enter a dissociated state, the pain makes you feel like you're alive. Um, so traumatic reenactments are created to, to gain mastery over trauma. We generate a traumatic conflict in order to get a more acceptable outcome, trying to get it right. So you're going to have an abortion again because you want to not be bothered by it. Repetitious behavior is a means to release trauma-related tension. And the actions provoke similar feelings and thoughts which accompanied the trauma. So helplessness might have been what you felt on your abortion, then the theme of your life, the reenactment, would be that you always feel helpless. You can't say no to anybody. Um, you're in relationships where you have no power. You're in jobs where you have no power. Abandonment might be the theme that you felt at the time of your abortion. And therefore, every guy you meet or are attracted to, and guess what? The other guys are boring because there's no, there's no chemistry. You know what the chemistry is? It's the chemistry of trauma. It's all the adrenaline of instability that feels so familiar, and it actually feels good. It feels good to a traumatized system because adrenaline medicates depression. Gr grief might be the theme, and how humiliation might be the theme. Think of all the ways we can humiliate ourselves. There are so many ways. Having affairs, you know keeping secrets, an eating disorder, all those things become the way that you re-experience a traumatic theme of humiliation. So you see how this goes. Anger might be the theme. You were so angry when you had to have it, and then you're going to go into even movements where you're allowed to be angry and there's some injustice you're fighting against, right? Um, save the whales, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and everything gets funneled into that. Um, or you're a vegetarian and you're never going to eat meat because it's violent. And you're, so the reenactments can be a reparative nature where you're not being the thing that you're, like the thing that you fear, or the ones where you master all that because you, you just, you numb yourself so much. So in, in effect, the reenactments can gain mastery over the trauma. A woman who has her first abortion is usually scared and wide-eyed, and she'll see someone there Oh, honey, it's fine. I had five. I had seven. You'll be fine. And because it becomes nothing, right? That's mastering the trauma through repetition. Or shame. And there's a million ways to shame yourself. In fact, Howard Stern used to have guests on, and he said he knew that most of these porn girls were sexually abused. And... Um, he would just say that, oh, your father did you, and you loved it, didn't you? And, um, but like the humiliation, but that's part of how they reenact. They go in, but they feel safer. They feel like they're in control. And now there's all these 
porn sites where you're your own porn star, so, porn star, so you don't even need a bouncer to protect you. And people are making a lot of money off this. Um, I can't believe how popular it is, and I can't believe the number of teachers that are involved in it, and people, counselors even, encouraging their clients who had sexual abuse that this is where you can have control. But that's also what happened with abortion. This is how we control our bodies, right? It's some, the trauma keeps the person locked into a particular conflict, and they'll continue to engage with the same struggle over and over again. When a person's undergone trauma, they gotta work it through. Some will attempt to do it unconsciously by recreating situations which resemble some aspect of the trauma. So it's, it's usually a disguised aspect, it's another thing. Um, the pr principal repetitions are dreams that repeat themselves, fantasies, uh, and repeated visualizations and intrusive thoughts. So when we look at the fantasies involved in S&M, we look at the anger, we look at a lot of other things, it's kind of, it's very provocative. The reenactment always involves post-traumatic perceptions and memories. The signs of traumatic reenactment, the signs of psychic trauma are repetition, high avoidance, and hyper-alertness. Repetition or reenactment is the most obvious indicator of trauma and the most reliable demonstration that trauma has occurred. So um, I, I think I'm going to just mention this. Abortion as a reenactment of previous sexual abuse. I've written extensively about this. Um, in the abortion, the abortionist hand or instrument forces her to undergo a penetrating violation deep into the protective and sacred part of her womb. Life is ended through this intrusion similar to the death and destruction of her sense of self which commonly results from sexual abuse. So abortion can be a symbolic suicide or a reenactment of this conflict. Even the grief of abortion, like the grief of incest, is held in um, unvoiced cries of secrecy. It can be a literal recreation of the intrusion forced on a woman during sexual incest or abuse as she remains helpless and powerless, consenting to the invasion while overwrought with unspoken shame and guilt, despair and grief. In the case of multiple abortions, the reenactment can be ritualized means through which the woman intensively grieves and mourns. I see eating disorders also as a ritual of grieving and dissociation. So um, Barbara had a long and violent history of sexual abuse, which began at the age of four in a prostitution ring. And years later, she described her abortions as her own sentencing and execution. I remember walking into that clinic and feeling like I was about to take my rightful place in an electric chair. I wanted that baby. I wanted all of them. And yet each time, I felt that abortion was just something that I had to do compulsion. Barbara felt compelled to destroy her children through abortion because of an abusive history. Her own inner child had been destroyed when she was a young girl who was repeatedly, violently, sexually abused. For Barbara, the analogy of an electric chair verifies abortion as a life-threatening shock, similar to many episodes of abuse she endured as a child. She continued to reenact this trauma and um, utilizing the symbolic part of herself, which was her babies who were aborted. Her own development was halted. Her own development was um, halted as a result of the abuse. And each developmental phase of her life, um, her, 
her life and her pregnancies, they were always aborted. At every development, it was an abortion. So um, this is a continuation of an abusive pattern. It's the hallmark of someone who's been abused. Abortion can be a way of punishing oneself for being bad. Um, or, or for those who've been abused, they have incredible amounts of anger and rage. It can be a way to express that anger. Um, and there's a lot of dynamics about it. Because so many women are affected by varying degrees of sexual abuse, we can't fail to recognize how abortion is experienced by many as another form of abuse. In my counseling, when I know there's a history of abuse and any kind of pre-screening um, you would do, when people call our hotline saying they're scheduled for an abortion and they, you know, what, whatever, I love to make this analogy because it's so powerful um, that a victim, she, she was a victim of abuse and you don't want to have, we, we want to stop these cycles of abuse and the victim, you're not someone who will become a perpetrator because you can be a mother and stop all this. People respond to that very powerfully. They don't want to identify with the abuser. And um, that might sound kind of harsh, but for people that have suffered that injury, it resonates very deeply. I find it a very powerful, quick intervention that almost, I listen first. I listen for a long time, and then I point out the patterns, and that we can stop this pattern now. And here's the worst part of that pattern that would be hard for you to live with, being a victim yourself. So, um, and I also think it's something to grieve when women who have abuse recognize that the very strong link between their sexual abuse. We never hear this spoken about, but it's a very important thing. And I think it's a, it's a good argument in a, in a world that's just trying to push abortion on everybody and stop every possible alternative um, you know, to protect the mother and, and her child. So um, one last story here is, I came to see that my most deeply held belief that there was not a single thing that I had that they couldn't take away. And the most precious, the more central to my being it was, that much more they would defile it. That's an awful realization, whether the loved, beloved is a stuffed bunny, the infinite, fragile core of one's physical and emotional being, or the baby that, that one hopes to love. It comes as a shock to find out as an adult that you've been in pain all your life, and that far from the feeling Far from not feeling anything about the baby you got rid of, your grieving for it has drenched your life. I remember one girl that was a prostitute told me that the men used to, um, they used to play a game of cards to decide whose turn it was to take her to the abortion clinic. They would play cards right in front of her, and then whoever lost would take her to the clinic. And she had like nine abortions. <laughs>